1: Hello everyone. Welcome to Lunch Agenda on full service radio. We are broadcasting live from the Line Hotel in Washington, D.C. I am your host, Julie Kurtz, stepping in for the fabulous Kiko Born on Lunch Agenda through the end of 2019. Lunch Agenda is a podcast that brings to light lesser known parts of the food system. Previous shows have featured an array of topics with guests like Leah Peniman, Mark Bittman, Marion Nessel, Julian Tertian, and Michael Twitty. You can find all those interviews on your favorite podcast app or at lunchagenda.simplecast.com. As your host of this Eating the Green New Deal series, I am thrilled to welcome various guests who play indispensable parts of our food system, in particular exploring how they strive for a more just, healthy, inclusive, and sustainable food system. We're taking a critical look at how a Green New Deal could help us shape that system, but also considering what voices and elements may be missing and what barriers hold farmers, workers, food business, policy, and community organizations back. Tune in to Eating the Green New Deal episodes one and two to learn more about what the Green New Deal is, what it is not, and how farmers are relating to it. Today on Lunch Agenda, we continue to explore the food and agricultural aspects of the Green New Deal, honing in on the workers who make that food system tick from farm to table. To help us do that, we are blessed to have Jose Oliva of the Food Chain Workers Alliance and HEAL uh, as a guest with us today. So let me tell you a little bit more about Jose Jose Oliva was born in Chehalu, Guatemala, or Quetzaltenango, as some of our listeners may know it, to Miriam González, a popular educator. As a result of his mother's involvement in social justice issues, they were forced to flee Guatemala in 1985, when Jose was just 13. Once in the U.S., Jose went, uh, worked for the Midwest Latino Research and Policy Center at the University of Illinois in Chicago, and was later called to be Executive Director Director of Casa Guatemala, where he began to organize day laborers in Chicago's street corners. He founded the Chicago Interfaith Workers Center and worked as coordinator of both the Interfaith Worker Justice uh, National Workers Center Network and Workers Alliance for a Just Economy, which is part of the Center for Community Change. He has led in various roles with the Restaurant Opportunities Center United, is is a co-director of the Food Chain Workers Alliance, a national coalition of food worker organizations, and moving in um, as a national organizer for the HEAL Foundation, which he is also a founding member of. Um, Jose is a 2017 James Beard Award recipient and a 2018 American Food Hero Awardee. Jose, it is truly an honor to have you on Lunch Agenda today. Welcome.
2: The honor is mine. Thank you so much for for having me.
1: (laughs) A pleasure. So, Jose, I was really struck uh, that your bio begins with your mother. Um, mm. <laughs> and what struck me, I thought, you know, well, okay, I'm a white woman from the U S and I grew up steeped in individualism. So I don't start my bio with my mom and apologies to my mom who may be listening. Uh, <laughs> but I, <laughs> I, I think maybe there's more to it, to that, to it, to that. And, and, and I was wondering if you can tell us how you see the through line between your hometown and the work that your mother was doing and Shihalu and some of the work, um, of some of your work these past 30-plus years.
2: Yeah, 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 absolutely. You're hitting the nail on the head. There's definitely a cultural dimension to why my mother is uh, (laughs) the first line of my bio. Yeah.
0: Um,
2: I definitely see the work that I am currently doing and that I've been doing um, as sort of a legacy, a family tradition, if you will. Mm. Um, and it is basically something that I think is ultimately about honoring my ancestors and honoring the people that came before me, not just mm. my ancestors, but the ancestors of many other people that have fought for a, a better world or more uh, dignified <laughs> life for everyone. Um, you know, my grandfather was um, on the... He was the vice minister of agriculture for Guatemala in the 1940s. Oh, wow.
0: um,
2: And part of his job was to essentially do a mapping of all of the arable land in the country uh, oh. and determine how much of that land was uh, idle, was not being currently uh, used for agriculture, Uh uh, and then redistribute that land to landless peasants. Um, That project, (laughs) during the Arbenz regime in the 1940s, is what triggered the CIA coup in 1954 that uh, eventually caused the Civil War that lasted 36 years, and, uh, you know, Over 200,000 people were killed during that war. Mm. My family was one of the multitude, over one million people who were displaced, uh, both internally and, you know, people like myself who ended up uh, here in the United States. Mm. Uh, And I mention this because it is a direct result of food policy, (laughs) of agricultural policy in, in Guatemala, but also food policy in the United States. The reason the U.S., um, uh, it invaded Guatemala in 1954 was because the, some of the land that was being nationalized and redistributed to the landless peasants belonged to the United Fruit Company, which is a US based mm-hmm. company. Um, there's a very good book uh called Bitter Fruit that sort of chronicles this entire episode of US mm-hmm. history um the, 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 the there was a brother who was a C, the the head of the CIA um Dulles and his brother um, was the head of the United Fruit Company, the CEO of the United Fruit Company. And mm-hmm. so it literally was a phone call from one brother to the other <laughs> saying, you know, they're taking our land and, you know, this is a, a communist country, even though Guatemala was hardly communist in, in the 1940s. Um, and uh, that's what triggered the, CIA, uh, the CIA-sponsored coup. Um, which, again, you know, is what led to the Civil War, which is what led to my family coming here and millions of other people leaving the country and then ending up in the U.S. and Mexico and on, uh, a bunch of other places. So, yeah, thank you very much for asking. That's a, <laughs> that's why it's there in my bio, absolutely. Yeah,
1: wow. Uh, I, and I think it's so <laughs> valuable for us to hear that history and know how much that informs uh, what you're doing now. Um and I guess to that end, uh, with an inheritance like that, did you ever think of doing something else? Uh, you, you've, you've really followed in the footsteps of your family and your mother um, doing the organizing work that you do. Did, did you ever consider being a, a doctor or, you know, an insurance salesman or a <laughs> te- like, What were the other options? <laughs> I don't know
2: that I had a... I don't really think I had a choice, to be honest with you, Julie. I I feel pretty committed to this work. And and even my family members who are not organizers, right? Like my brother is a a public school teacher, Mm. um, but still carries this work with him, right? It is is literally what is driving his work um, as a public school teacher here in Chicago. So I think, you know, it doesn't really... It isn't something you can abandon. It's something you mm. can use in different ways, I think, right? Um, and some some of my uh, family members have embraced it, I think, a little bit more deeply than others. But I think yeah. um, all of us have been uh, lucky enough, I think, to know our history and know know who our parents were and know who our grandparents were and know who, you know, uh, our people were.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I... I um well, I, I echo your just shout-out to the role of teachers. I think that um, they can really embody this work in a, on a really intimate level, and I, I give shout-out to my close friends who are public school teachers. I think they do amazing work. Um, well, yes, yes. So <laughs> I, for, for listeners who may not be familiar with what the work of, of – um, of organizing is about uh so last week on the show we had two farmers and they had they both recently transitioned as they said to trading in their boots for a suit and tie because they're now they're they're advocating um for farmers but they gave us a bit of an overview of kind of what what their weeks what their season looks like um one of them mentioned weaning they're weaning calves now on, on the ranch um so Probably you aren't weaning calves, but I'm wondering, <laughs> what does a typical week look like? What what do the seasons throughout the year look like for you in your work?
2: Uh, well, you know, it really does vary. Um, I have to say that Fuchin Workers Alliance um, represents 33 um, worker-based organizations that that represent Roughly 350,000 workers, right. uh, both in the U.S. and in Canada. And so a lot of my work is really about supporting them, right? And hmm. for your listeners that don't know what the food system is, which I doubt that there are that many out there still, but it's actually a pretty unfathomable, uh, system. It's huge, right? It is the yeah. largest employer. In the United States, it's bigger than healthcare. right? It's bigger mm-hmm. than anything else. 21.5 million people yeah. work in the food system. Um, and that's farm workers, that's uh, processing workers, that's transportation workers, that's restaurant workers, that's grocery store workers, that's street vendors, um, institutional food service <laughs> providers, right? I mean, it is mm-hmm. an enormous, enormous... Um, food system. Uh, And it's not just the the largest uh, employer uh, in the U.S., it's also the lowest paid. Mm -hmm. And so what we end up with, or a lot of the work that I end up doing on on a day-to-day basis is really thinking through strategies for how to improve working conditions, wages, et cetera, for Mm -hmm. workers throughout all five of those sectors that I just mentioned in the food system. Um, And, you know, that could be uh, about pushing legislation like the good food purchasing policy, which is a Mm -hmm. procurement policy that we um, helped put together back in 2012 and Los Angeles and now it has been adopted in uh, uh, roughly a dozen cities and institutions all over the country. Um, and essentially what the good food purchasing policy does is that it, it provides a uh, values-based approach to public purchasing of food, right? Yeah. And there's so much money that we spend uh, on an annual basis. Uh, just here in the city of Chicago, for instance, the Chicago Public Schools, spends a little bit over $300 million um, just in school lunches, right, for the kids. And so uh, our our thinking is uh, if we're paying for that anyways as taxpayers, uh, shouldn't that food mirror our values, right? And and shouldn't it be food that is both good for the kids, good for the environment, good for the workers that uh, are, are working both on the production end and on the service end of that food, uh, shouldn't it be good to uh, our local economies? Shouldn't it be good to the farm animals that are, uh, you know, being slaughtered in some cases for the for the food? Um, and and so those five values are essentially what the good food purchasing policy is, and that's what we try to drive into um, every purchasing um, contract in yeah. uh, in all of the cities where the good food purchasing policy has been passed. Now, policy approach is just one, right? Like, mm-hmm. there's also a way of improving wages and conditions directly with an employer, and that often takes the form of union organizing, although it's not always a union uh, sometimes it's a worker center. Sometimes it's uh, an informal uh, agreement between the workers and the, and the employer. Um, but, you know, in, in our mind, uh, and it's not just in our mind, actually, the evidence shows that union uh, contracts are actually the most effective way for people mm-hmm. to reach the middle class, for people to leave poverty behind, right? And if we're talking about the lowest paid sector in the U.S. economy, um, a union contract to me makes a lot of sense, right, because mm. that will immediately raise the wages, immediately improve conditions, uh, create pathways for people to leave poverty and, and enter the middle class. Um, so that's, you know, a lot of what I do is, is supporting our members, whether it's uh, through yeah. policy work or through direct organizing sure. <laughs> or in some cases, you know, uh, just Communications, media, that kind of stuff,
1: right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's important too. We're, we'll talk a, a more about policy in the second half of our conversation, but also uh, remembering how central um, the your direct targeting of the private sector and, and this coordination between private sector and and the interests of workers is, and, and that's you know, as you mentioned, that's the most direct way, effective way to 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 raise people into the middle class. Um, so. Understanding policy's not is just one of the levers. That's uh,
2: right. <laughs>
1: uh, yeah. what are some of the challenges? So you mentioned that Food Chain Workers Alliance represents around three hundred and fifty thousand people within its within its member organizations. And I think you know, we often stop to think the incredible challenges for, for anyone or any institution representing that many people with different values and some different backgrounds or agendas. And so I'm wondering what are some of the challenges of, of connecting and, and, and representing such a large community?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. We've been, um, trying really hard to get folks to wrap their heads around how they are part of one food system. Hmm. Um, that's really difficult for a lot of folks to understand, right? And especially yeah. if you come to this country um, because you are, you know, either fleeing poverty, fleeing war, fleeing violence of other sorts, uh, and you come here and you, you're not thinking about how how am I going to um, fight for other people? You're thinking about, how am I going to make a living? How am I going to put food on the table for my family? Um, And so pretty much any job that is available that, you know, obviously that that pays a living wage is something that you seek out. Um, And so for folks to then make a leap (laughs) from that to wrapping their heads uh, around what the food system looks like overall mm-hmm. um and that it is uh much more effective and much more likely to be uh, a victory if we fight together mm-hmm. to improve the food system than it is if we are isolated and you know in our own silos fighting by ourselves um And so that has been, I think, one of the deepest challenges for us. And to be honest with you, it isn't just a challenge with our members, right? It isn't just about our members not understanding that, you know, they're part of this bigger food system and that we have to fight together with Mm -hmm. other sectors in order to improve that food system. It's also challenging to educate the other sectors (laughs) about our members, right? And helping them understand that actually the food system is a, it's It's a like I said earlier, right it's this huge uh machine um that literally uses people um and churns them and spits them out right and and for a lot of folks who've been doing Food activism or you know a- any kind of food work to improve the food system,
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, it is really hard for them to wrap their heads around why workers right like why why should we okay. care about yeah. people who work in the food system um, and so that's been a challenge for us it's been it's gotten a lot better you know I have to be absolutely honest with you and say that when we founded the chain Workers Alliance ten years ago, um, it was hard to find a venue where we could bring up workers and where it was um, where people didn't look at you like you were a Martian. Right <laughs> um, now, it's pretty commonplace. As a matter of fact, I actually think anyone having a serious conversation about the food system and they don't bring up workers, I think they're not taken seriously. Right? Mm, it, it's
0: yeah. it's
2: changed It's changed drastically, I think, in part because of our work. I don't want to take all the credit for that, right, but I think in part it is because of what Food Chain Workers Alliance has been doing over the yeah. course of the last decade. Um, so I think those are probably the deepest challenges that, that we've seen. Um, the one thing that I want to mention, though, in, in relation to that last challenge is that it is gotten um, fairly easy to identify or to you know to, to um, run into folks talking about workers without workers being mm-hmm. at the table um, sure. and that's all that's equally dangerous right any mm-hmm. decision that's made about us without us ultimately isn't for us right that's just yeah. how society works, right? If you have people making decisions about other people without those people being represented, that's probably not going to benefit them. And so it's really important um, for workers to be at the table, for workers to be on the front lines of whatever decisions are being made that will ultimately impact them.
1: Yeah, yeah. And we're going to talk more about that too as we as we dig into a little bit of the the Green New Deal. But I think that that decisions made you know about us uh, um without mm-hmm. us at the table i think is a is mm-hmm. is a, an important point for us to just sit with um sure. yeah. the the last question that we before we get into our, our short break i wanted to ask you i know you've mentioned um before the ways that that labor and race and immigration and food are, are all connected and do you a, obviously, your own story is tells a par- powerful narrative of how these things are all interconnected. And d- do you think that's something that the general public really understands? Is that web of labor, race, mm-hmm. immigration, food?
2: No, I think we've been uh, miseducated to think in silos, right? To think in to to think in terms of either issue area. Or to think in terms of specific, um, a very specific uh, purpose or a very specific uh, wedge in uh, in society, rather than thinking about how systems work overall.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and I think that's a part of what my story tells. Right? It's 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 a very common story in many ways. Right? Mm-hmm. It's it's obviously unique in that, you know, my grandfather was this. Um, vice Minister of uh, <laughs> uh-huh. of uh, uh, Agriculture in Guatemala and all that stuff, and not everybody's uh, parents and grandparents were, were that, right? But it is very common in the sense that it is a civil war that um, pushed us to leave. Mm-hmm. Um, it is the same reason millions of people left Guatemala, El Salvador, Nicaragua, even southern Mexico for many years. Um, and it is because of the food system, right, that that civil war was triggered, Mm -hmm. Um, and that's very common. That's a very common story for many of the people who come to this Mm -hmm. country. Um, And then, you know, the part I think that we haven't really talked about is the race part, Um, but I think it's actually a really important part of all this, of the whole story, because once folks arrived here they took jobs that were traditionally jobs that African Americans used to do. Um, mm-hmm. And without, the understand, without understanding that, right, and, and that's actually one of the things that we do at Food Chain Workers Alliance, is we do a lot of cross-race education. We mm-hmm. talk a lot about how um, mm-hmm. basically slavery is the... Um, the, the beginning of the food system in the United States. Yeah. Um, and, and then how those former slaves um, were mistreated, right? I mean, everything from the Jim Crow laws to sunset laws to a whole range of different legal and extra legal mechanisms that were used against them to keep them in poverty, to keep them in. A place of uh, subservience um, mm-hmm. to to white people, and specifically to a class, right? To a, to a one <laughs> percent that essentially dominated uh, the economic life of this country, yeah. and that that was that was the context that then these immigrants arrive into, right? And and yeah. we arrive, and we end up taking the jobs that used to be the black jobs. Um, and then that is a very easy way to divide and conquer because yeah, you are literally able to argue to African-Americans, look, here's these immigrants coming, taking their jobs, um, and the flip side of that being the argument that's made to immigrants is, oh, you lazy lazy African-Americans don't want to do this work, right, mm. um, without the context of what has been fought for, what has been won through the Civil Rights Movement, <laughs> and also, you know, the labor movement, right, and, and the victories that the labor movement has won in improving wages and working conditions for for African-American workers for, you know, decades and decades, right? And so. That, all of that, I think, is the context that we're not seeing often Yeah, <laughs> um, that is there, right? And, and, and I don't think it's anyone's specific fault. I don't think any of your listeners is specific and guilty of not knowing that. I think it's it's been pretty purposefully obfuscated for them. I think a lot mm-hmm. of folks who do understand this only understand it because they've sought this information out themselves, right? It has not been part of the education system. It has not been part of, you know, what we are taught as children in the
1: country. Sure, sure. Well, and we have to... Uh, it, it, I'm I'm very appreciative and in awe of... I think, I imagine that's a very delicate space for food chain workers' alliance um, and some of its partners to take on is uh, building those dialogues between, um, as you mentioned, African American communities and immigrant communities that are um, often at the, the bottom <laughs> of of the labor um, the labor um, pool, uh, and trying right. to build understanding with that, those communities. And I was, thank you for shedding light on that. Um, it, it makes me think of, uh, so a, a mentor of mine who is Mexican and part of what, um, what inspired him to keep moving and um, get a, a, a PhD and become a leader in the food system and in the United States was, was this little cutout, this image, and um, a, a landowner who says, the quote at the bottom is, well, we'll all, always need someone to do the menial work. Um, and this is someone <laughs> whose ancestor was part of the bracero program and so this was a, a driving motivation for him to keep moving and, and um, not only gain his expertise in in the scientific field and understanding the food system but um, really motivated by um, by that quote. so
2: yeah, yeah yeah no I mean I think it's it's actually very um, alarming to me when the argument against increasing the minimum wage, for instance, is, well, just get a better job, (laughs) Um, which essentially is a recognition that those jobs are necessary um, and that they are exploitable jobs, that Mm -hmm. that someone will be exploited Mm -hmm. doing that job, right? And so it doesn't... Sit well with me when people say, "Well, you know, they can just get a better job." <laughs>
1: yeah,
2: uh, yeah. It's that's not that easy either. You know, it's not like you can just uh, go and uh, become a corporate lawyer. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. Instead of make all jobs better.
2: Right. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Okay. Well, we are going to take a quick break, and then when we come back in, we'll we'll dive a little bit more into some of the policy aspects. you. Welcome back to Lunch Agenda, listeners. I am your host, Julie Kurtz. We're broadcasting from Washington, D.C., and we are talking today with Jose Oliva, a longtime organizer um, among workers throughout uh, food supply chains. Uh, Jose, I want to transition now to talk a little bit more about policy and how um, organizing at the grassroots level uh, relates to policy. So... Uh, Food Chain Workers Alliance, along with the HEAL Alliance that you are part of, um, was they were a part, one of the over 300 food, farming, fishing, worker, environmental, public health, and public interest organizations that signed a letter that was sent to every single member of Congress um, as well as other actors in the food system in support of advancing a Green New Deal that, quote, reflects the central role of food and agriculture in our climate crisis. So both food as a, as a potential cause and a potential solution to climate crisis. Um, and one of the things that the letter also emphasized was a just transition to a sustainable future, so that one that in which America's farmers, ranchers, fishers, workers, and those, those who feed the nation um, must be at the center of this policy agenda, not at the sidelines. Some of what you had mentioned before, if we're making decisions about people for them and when they're not at the table. Um, so and one of the things that I've been told by some of the, the the lead authors of this letter is that they saw some real promising elements in the Green New Deal resolution um, that was put forward by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Senator Markey, and... Um, particularly that of ensuring that frontline communities and those who may be hardest hit by some of the devastation of a, of a changing climate and extreme weather and toxicity from pesticides or water or air pollution that that these communities who too often historically have have been sidelined that they should be a central part of the the policy formation so um a couple weeks ago, we actually read from the Green New Deal. Uh, it's not very long, and and this this letter that was signed by over 300 organizations is actually roughly the same length. Um, both both a couple thousand words here, so so the letter really gets into a lot more detail um, about laying out a kind of comprehensive new direction uh, for new new addressing issues like. Carbon mitigation and and climate resilience, like fair prices for farmers, ranchers, fishers, um, and workers, diversified and resilient regional food systems. Um, so these kinds of things. And so, I'm I'm curious about uh, your response as part of Food Chain Workers Alliance and, and the Heel Alliance. Um, why Why did Food Chain Workers Alliance sign on to this? Letter And are there particular ways that you think that the Food Chain Worker Alliance community influenced the the content of the letter? Um, So sort of Mm -hmm. what do you think should be in a Green New Deal? And and was that represented in this letter?
2: Absolutely. Um, So first, yes, we signed on um, because the climate crisis is impacting frontline workers. Uh, first and most uh, most uh, egregiously. Um, greenhouse gas emissions come from a number of sources. Um, 25% is from energy, from electricity and heat. And food has always been sort of looked at as, oh, you know, it's, it's one of the little ones, right? Uh, food, waste is 6.7%. So it doesn't seem to be that big of a deal. However, if you add food waste to agriculture and land, which is 20.4%, and you add that to food manufacturing, food transportation, food energy... (laughs) you actually end up with a very large percentage, nearly 32% of overall greenhouse gas emissions that come directly from the food system.
1: And that's a food system globally, right, including some of the land use change that is a part of that.
2: Correct, that's yeah. right. And so what we're talking about is um, being the primary driver of... All of the climate mayhem that we're seeing today, um, and and that what I what I just mentioned that that large percentage is the what what people would refer to as the industrial food system, right, mm. or the traditional food system. I don't know, you know, whatever term you want to use, right? But it's the large monocrop agriculture, uh, large beef, pork, uh, poultry production, right? The case the confined animal feeding operations, all of that. That is, that is what I'm talking about in that large 30%. Um, the reality is that that food system isn't the only food system that exists, right? We have two competing food systems, um, the one that I just mentioned, the industrial food system, accounts for about ninety percent of all the food that is produced in the world. Uh, so we are in dire straits in terms of <laughs> in terms of what we're producing and how we're producing it, uh, because that food, that industrial food, that's being produced, is also not the best food for our bodies, right? And that's uh, one of the reasons mm-hmm. obesity uh, and 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 some of the other food related illnesses are on a rise is because we're eating uh, way outside of what we should be eating. Um, and, and, you know, it, it's driven by profit. It's driven by essentially what the industrial food system is trying to sell. Um, but there is a smaller part of the food system, um, about 10% of the food system, and these numbers are based on a study that the Kellogg Foundation um, Okay. launched uh, about a decade ago um, so ten percent of, of the overall food that everyone eats um, is either organic or it's healthy or it, it comes from local uh, local farmers or it comes you know it, it, it's sort of like your the five the five value categories that I mentioned earlier mm-hmm. right uh, mm-hmm. human health environmental uh, sustainability, animal welfare, local economies and labor and and the reality is that if you count just that all all five of those value categories, um, you only get about ten percent of all the food that is being produced that actually could be considered good food under those five value categories
1: and are those again are, are global numbers is that
2: just... that's correct that's okay. that's what the Kellogg that's what the okay. Kellogg study. Uh, Measured,
1: and I imagine to a degree we'd we'd have to get into some of the weeds of how the you know what is the, the the methodology of how where's the cutoff line because obviously there's industrial organic and because I do a lot of my work in. In Africa, so much of what feeds that continent is the, is production by smallholder farmers, and whether they are n- not are counted as part of the industrial food system is that that can be a really challenging call. So, um, yes, but I'm going to take a look there's, at that study to to to, to see how they define. There, yeah, there's some,
2: some some blurry lines in in a lot of these categories. Sure. So, for instance, when you talk about labor, right, just. Being in a union doesn't mean that the facility is not an industrial <laughs> facility. Sure. As a matter of fact, many beef and pork uh, producers in the U.S. are union. Right? Mm. It's, it's about 80% in beef and it's about 60% mm. uh, in, in pork. Um, and so there's, there's blurry lines all over the place. So mm. I, I totally agree. I think it really depends on uh, how, you, how you interpret some of these some of the numbers um, but but you know even if we're even if we're extremely conservative and say five percent of the entire food system is good food um, what we're seeing is a trend we're seeing growth in that direction um, and we're seeing some models of what that would look like right and so mm. one model that I think is a really fascinating model that that has been pioneered in Cincinnati um, is a food co-op that is actually from farm to, um, uh, from farm all the way to market, right? And so, and it's union, it's 100% union, it's 100% local, it's 100% organic. um, And it's a fascinating model because if you look at it, if you look at the way that they function, right, it is the workers are the owners of the production facility, the workers are the owners of the transportation um, vehicles, the workers are also the owners of the supermarkets where where the food is sold. Um, and that guarantees, you know, good livable wages, it guarantees an investment in, in the cooperative mm-hmm. uh, or in the food itself. Um, and then, you know, you're talking about good, healthy local food that is grown right there, that is uh, sold to the people of those communities. Mm-hmm. Um, that model to me is what we, what the future and what the Green New Deal represents, right? Like mm-hmm. it, it really gives you uh, a, a glimpse into what kind of uh, jobs we can have, what kind of food we can have, what kind of communities we can have—just um, looking at at that model in particular. Yeah. So I,
1: and looking I at, a, oh, go ahead.
2: No, I just wanna—I wanted, wanted to say that it's—it's—it's it's, it's called Our Harvest Cooperative. Our um, Harvest. Yeah, and it's and it's a fairly you know new, uh, newish. Right, it's been about a decade that they have launched. Um, but it's got some amazing amazing folks behind it, and it's been you know uh, some some of our uh inspiration <laughs> obviously in just thinking about the green new deal comes from
1: yeah from that well, I'm wondering, so with our harvest, especially as an example um how do you see the role i mean uh businesses that i mean this is that their work is private sector it's it it's within um in the business setting. Um, so, what is the important importance of of that private sector work versus what is the importance of um, the policy angle? Um, uh, and from your perspective, as an as an organizer, what do you what do you need policy or, or top down change from? Even if that change includes um, people from these frontline communities in that dialogue, so what what do you? What can you not effectively do from the business or the grassroots side that you need policy for change for?
2: I, I mean, the, the the way that I think of policy is more like parameters and not necessarily mm-hmm. as, as something that um, that dictates uh, behavior. So, what what I think could be a green new deal with a just transition that brings workers to the center um, is a legislative process, a policy process that makes it a priority for workers to be the owners, right? So that Mm. you are literally investing in cooperative ownership um, as, as a government, right? So we're using taxpayer dollars to subsidize, just like we're subsidizing major corporations right now, uh, you pull the, the subsidies from those guys and you invest that in cooperative ownership and in the development of uh, not just cooperatives, right? I mean, the cooperative model, I think, is uh, fascinating and it, and it ultimately, um, I think, would be a good replacement to what we currently have, but also, you know, private small business ownership, right? Mm-hmm. And that the, the small business ownership that I'm talking about uh, runs the gamut of everything from you know sp- a small farm to small grocery store and everything in the middle, right? The, the mm-hmm. entire um, gamut of the uh, of the five sectors of the food system, um, but that that can be subsidized um, with uh, with literal money from government sources the same way that we're subsidizing these gigantic corporations right now, right? They don't need our subsidies, um, small businesses do.
0: Uh,
2: And then simultaneous to that, right? I think another element that the Green New Deal takes into consideration that I am eager to make sure that workers are or continue to be at the center of it is the modernization of our current labor laws, right? So Mm. the way the Fair Labor Standards Act and the National Liberal Relations Act, the FLSA and the NLRA, um, currently stand is they both um, exclude farm workers. Um, So, as an example, the Fair Mm -hmm. Labor Standards Act, which is actually what uh, gives uh, or, or provides the... Floor the minimum wage for uh, for uh-huh. this country um, excludes farm workers, which yeah. means farm workers can be paid less than the minimum wage, and it is not illegal.
1: <laughs> and with the exception being California, right? Because they actually the state changed the law.
2: Right, 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 so well, I'm talking federal, but federal, federal on right a here. federal, like, in, yeah,
1: they're just one state, they're a big one, um, and, and we do pay attention when California do, does things, but um, mm-hmm. yeah, for a long time, that has been a case, and as you mentioned, sort of has roots in slavery.
2: In slavery, absolutely, absolutely. That was the, the deal that was cut with Southern Democrats. When the Fair Labor Standards Act was passed, and when the National Labor Relations Act was passed, right? They essentially made the deal of uh, excluding uh, former slaves, essentially. So, you know what? 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 I think the Green New Deal could do is it, it could actually modernize that. It could create a uh, a process for all of the workers of this country, and especially the ones who are in these crucial. Um, Greenhouse gas emitting sectors to have the same livable wage uh, as everybody else right mm-hmm. and I'm not talking about a, a minimum wage I'm talking about a livable a wage livable right so wage. starting at the at the baseline of fifteen dollars an hour
0: mm-hmm. um,
2: and moving up from there right and and having uh having that catch up with the times um, so that we're actually paying people what they're worth right instead yeah. of instead of yeah. what what we uh, what as a, as as uh, my friend uh Ricardo salvador says right the the cheap food that we eat is based on the cheap labor yeah. <laughs>
1: um,
2: yeah And so that's I think the 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 basis of uh where the green New deal needs to go, and then I also think there's a part of the the farm bill that is um also antiquated that that has to do with subsidies right that is really embedded um in major agribusiness, uh, controlling the subsidy process.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and that needs to go, right? I mean, to the extent that we are literally subsidizing greenhouse yeah. gas emissions,
1: yeah.
2: um, we really, at the very least, should stop subsidizing it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, we and we talked right to some
1: it, of that with our first guest on this series, Fred Hefner. We talked a little bit about some of those different subsidies and how those could motivate, Positive environmental change, and where we are, they maybe are. As he said, I think the emperor has no clothes on some of these, some of these yes, subsidies absolutely. that have been in place for, for many many years and had a purpose when they started, but maybe have lost uh, lost their relevance now. Yeah. So I have one one more quick question before we close out, and and um so. Of the, the 21 million jobs that are in the, the, the food, the larger food sector in, in this country, so many of those are in the private sector. And you've been talking about a $15 minimum wage. And a lot of those, um, a lot of that private sector is larger businesses. And some larger businesses have been uh, leading the way and, and, and pushing um, for positive climate change, even some positive um uh, labor standards throughout their supply chains. and so I'm, I'm curious what what do you think the role of, of business is and, and and some of those large businesses is there a place for them? and is there something you wish that they understood more about the role of, of laborers? Um, could, could Could Food chain workers Alliance work effectively with with pretty large businesses if they were really collaborating?
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't. I don't think. Um, I don't think large businesses are going to go away overnight.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> um, and, and I think there is going to be even through this process of uh, a just transition, there's going to be a need for the infrastructure that has been set up by a lot of these large corporations. Um, so I, I, you know, I think and i think there's examples of, of um companies that that want to do the right thing that have been um to some extent successful in doing the right thing uh chipotle comes to mind right they have done a pretty good job both on the uh, on the environmental front and on the labor front mm-hmm. um you know there's there's still a long ways to go obviously and, and there's still room for improvement for, for um, a lot of the, the smaller companies that are trying to do the right thing as well.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, but I think yeah for you know from, from the perspective of labor I think large corporations actually have more resources sure. to work sure. with us. Um, so you know you have Tyson for instance um, has many unionized beef and, and pork plants. They don't have that many poultry plants that are unionized. One huge step that they could take is, uh, you know, begin to work with the United Food and Commercial Workers to unionize those, the poultry plants. Hmm. Um, Both as a matter of racial equity, because it just so happens that the poultry plants are predominantly black and brown workers Mm -hmm. and beef and pork uh, are not. (laughs) Uh So from that perspective alone, right, it should be prioritized uh, for them to to come to an agreement with the United Food and Commercial Workers on representing, uh, you know, the millions of workers in in the poultry industry. Uh, Not to mention that when you have a union, you know, you're also in a better position to um, effectively deal with some of these huge health and safety challenges that are faced, especially in the poultry
1: industry. So we have just one minute left, and I I do want to give you a chance to offer your action item, um, which is Mm. anything, one thing can be as simple as can be that listeners can do in their own lives to change the food system for the better.
2: Well, I think you should absolutely go to foodchainworkers.org and... Become a member, uh, join us, uh, make a monthly contribution. That's absolutely necessary. That's how we—that's how we survive, right? We yeah. don't—we're unable to do the work that we do if we don't have supporters um, to, you know, to make it possible. Wonderful. So I think that's the biggest, most important thing you can do. Um, and then, you know, obviously, there's um, a multitude of campaigns in almost every city in this country to pass the Good Food Purchasing Policy, yeah. the GFTP. So I think getting yeah. involved, you know, and... and
1: I think this that uh, Lunch Agenda could do an episode on the Good Food Purchasing Program. I think there's a lot to be... Uh- that we could dive into there. Well, let me make sure that everyone knows where they can find you. You just mentioned foodchainworkersalliance.org, a great place for, for for listeners to make a contribution. You're also on Facebook, on on Instagram at food chain workers, and then on Twitter at it is at food and labor, and at food chain worker. Um, we get all those right?
2: Yeah, that's correct. Okay.
1: So coming up next week, we are hearing from a soil scientist and, and farmer in Nebraska. Um, and uh, I think, trust me, everyone, you will never be so excited about soil. So get ready to blow your topsoil, everyone. Um, Jose, we cannot thank you enough for, for being a guest on the show. Thank you so much for, for sharing from your you, years baby. and years of experience in this. Um, we're really, really honored to have you. you. Um, you can follow me at soil soul food on Twitter and um, we are excited to have uh, learned from Jose today and uh, Le- lunch agenda listeners we will see you next week thanks so much Thank you